Um, what do you guys think? Is uh, killing a goldfish uh, tantamount to cold-blooded murder? Yes, I would say Ooh. so. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get charged for it, though. No, like it's it's a moral crime, not a legal crime. Exactly, exactly. Even in the streets of London, I suppose. Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to its release and reception. We are doing existential thrillers this cycle. Uh, We have a special guest, Natasha. Introduce yourself. Tell us all about yourself and your background. Thanks for for joining us, Natasha. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Natasha. I'm from Singapore. Uh, I'm a film editor and film critic here, which is... uh, I received my Rotten Tomatoes accreditation last year. Amazing. Yeah, and I'm a school teacher as well. Yeah. I love it. You're our second uh, Rotten Tomato approved critic on the show. Yeah. Fantastic. We love it. (laughs) Like having royalty. Oh, I I <laughs> I don't know how royal I am. I th- I think it's like you know when you get it, you're so excited because yeah. it's like wow, you know. And then after that, you're like, okay, I guess this is right. it. Now what? <laughs> yeah. What else is there to achieve, really? Uh, uh, tell us. Uh, you, you, so you're one of the editors at culturedvultures.com, Is that correct? Yes, correct. Uh, so basically, Cultured Vouchers is this uh, pop culture site, right, that um, we cover lots of things. Uh, we have different subsections. So there's TV, games, uh, books, uh, <laughs> uh, film, of course, uh, wrestling. Uh, and did I say TV? I think I did. Yeah, so um, basically all these subsections and I run the film section. So we have, oh. so there's a bunch of editors and and our editor-in-chief. Yeah, so that's a kind of like a side hustle. Like I just, yes, yeah, so when I'm not teaching, I am writing. So, yep. Very cool. Do awesome. you have a, a favorite film this year so far? This year? Anything that comes, yeah, this year. Anything that comes to mind, something you recently covered? Uh, I liked um, Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. I think it just it's coming out this week on Hulu. Uh, it stars Emma Thompson, Daryl McCormick. Um, oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's Very basically cool. about this older woman who hires um, like a sex worker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess the premise sounds a bit sketchy, but uh, it's yeah. actually really a really thoughtful film on like how we as a society like look at desire, look at sex and yeah. aging and sex I think is interesting. So um, and it's mostly, it's a mostly two-hander film, but it was really well done. And of course, I mean, it's Emma Thompson, so she's always great, but yeah. he really kept up with her, so he was a surprising um, you know, find. Yeah. So it comes so out soon on a Hulu? Uh, yeah, it's coming out this week, I think. Uh, awesome. Tomorrow, yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. That, that sounds good. That sounds very good. I think it dovetails into this film a little bit. Oh, yeah, right? totally. So what are we doing, Chris? This uh, is, is this a mutual choice? I can't remember who chose this. This was, yeah, the, the Chaser film, which we'll get to towards the end of the show. Uh, David Mamet's feature debut, House of Games, was your pick. Um, but this one, I think I threw on our kind of draft and it just stayed there because I feel like it's pretty um, canonical when it comes to not necessarily thrillers in general, but especially like political thrillers. 
yes. uh, spy thrillers, if you will. Um, it's 1992's The Crying Game. Uh, as we are wont to do, I'll firstly read the logline and then ask you guys uh, where you know your history with this film started and uh, what it was like to either revisit it or if it was one of your or both of your first second visits, first visits, uh, <laughs> whatever number it was, um, how, how it hit you in 2022. So uh, IMDb. Um, what a film to try to get a IMDb synopsis from. Yeah, tough one. Here it is. A British soldier kidnapped by IRA terrorists, their language, not mine, soon befriends one of his captors who then becomes drawn into the soldier's world. A British soldier kidnapped by IRA terrorists soon befriends one of his captors who then becomes... It's the same thing. It's, it's double... It's a two-line uh, review synopsis on IMDb's site. So good job, IMDb, for copy editing. <laughs> They kept, it, they kept it simple. They're like, the sentence is so good, we have to say it twice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, drawn into the soldier's world. What a strange way to ex- basically... Uh, but it, it doesn't give anything away, though. No, no. And that it, was the whole thing in 92, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Natasha, since you're our guest, uh, why don't you start? Did you Had you seen this film before? Uh, what's your history with it? Take it away. I have I had not seen this film before. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the first I I I think I heard of it, but I didn't really like I've never watched it. So the first time was really prepping for the podcast. So I watched it. Um was it yeah, I watched it like this week, basically. And then yeah. uh, I, I reached I rewatched some parts of it last yesterday. Yeah. So this is my first <laughs> interaction with the film. <laughs> yeah. And it, you, it, I mean, you said you had heard of it. Like, did you know that the, I don't, I don't want to use the word twist because it's unfair to what actually occurs in the film. Um, but I mean, what did you know going into it other than like, it was a relatively famous British film from the early nineties? Um. I I try usually when I go into a film usually I try not to read anything about it. Um, sure. I guess depending on the film because nowadays it's like you can't go anywhere without getting without getting spoiled about something, yeah. right? You know, if you're on Twitter and you know any recent movie is gonna get spoiled in some way, if you're gonna linger long enough. So generally, I don't like to. So I tend to read about it after I've watched it. So I try to go in as uh, a clean slate as possible. So. I didn't know anything about it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. that's impressive. That's probably about, the best way to view it. Yeah, like, yeah. Because especially, like, I feel like, yeah. I mean, I had never seen this before. What? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it, it had a very different, I think in America growing up, because this movie was so successful here, that it was like, uh, and I was like only, we were what, like uh, nine or ten when it came out? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So we're pretty young. Uh, but I knew all about it. Like I had heard it many, many times growing up. I knew the sort of reveal or sort of the mystery, um, part of it, you know, way before obviously I'd seen the film or even knew, I didn't even know it was about the IRA. I had no clue that it was about that whatsoever (laughs) or the political side to it. So yeah, to me, it was kind of like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Like I kind of knew the, the big marketing sort of gimmick reveal that they did, but, um, I didn't know anything else about the film. So I, I forgot that uh, Neil Jordan did it, mm-hmm. who did Mona Lisa, 
which is yeah. a movie I just w- watched maybe oh that's right a few months ago and was blown away by because I'm doing this like noir rewatch thing or whatever and uh, I loved that movie and this one what came out you know after that but um, yeah I was kind of like wow this is kind of a a very not necessarily what I expected based on hearing about it growing up for the last thirty years right mm, yeah I mean it definitely hit different than I thought it was going to sure sure and it's I mean. Especially, I think that first act is yeah. got to be surprising if you know the intrigue and the quote discourse that the film sparked, especially here in America and with the Academy Awards. And especially, I think, as to guys growing up in the 90s, uh, I mean, my initial reference point for the film before I actually saw it was Ace Ventura. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. Sure. That's how I probably first really realized about it. Yeah. So you, are you familiar with that uh, correlation, Natasha? Um, I think when I was reading up about it, that's what I saw. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> I think weirdly enough, I saw Ace Ventura first. <laughs> yeah, <before exactly. laughs> I saw this movie, so I, I had no idea. So I think um, generally, I guess, because we didn't really get it in Singapore, like it wasn't really known here. And I think when I, I mean, the film, when it came out, I was really young. I was yeah. like... <laughs> three years old or something yeah, so yeah, yeah. uh yeah it was not even i think locally it wasn't like we we i mean it depends like you know what suddenly comes onto the singapore scene but we don't really get a lot of films uh and i think with that subject matter right we definitely wouldn't have gotten this film yeah. because sure. of um yeah i mean we're quite a conservative society you know, yeah. so, um, you know, recently, I think there's more, I think, uh, acceptance and, you know, there are certain ratings now. So they've kind of expanded it. But I think back then, I, I'm pretty sure we didn't get the film here, which is why I think I never heard of it until you guys introduced it to me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot more sense now, uh, knowing the context of, I think, especially because America, and that was one of the, that's one of the big things we will likely get into in discussing the the history of the film and because you know, it's it's unusual in that it's one of the few british films that had much more success across the pond yeah. mm-hmm. than it did in its home country um and i don't even i mean i read a lot about how largely that was because especially in 92 was one of the more significant um bombings uh, by the IRA of uh, a London pub or a British pub. I don't know if it was in London. Yeah. And it was it like literally happened one of the weekends that they were filming this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so it basically, you know, got, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's, it's, it's blacklisted without like anybody actually saying it's blacklisted. It just gets ignored. Yeah. Um, but it does uh, rev up. Jordan's career stateside, and it also, uh, I think, sparks more conversations about uh, the IRA, but that also gets completely overshadowed by the fact, and we should say it straight out if you've managed to uh, not be spoiled of what uh, occurs about an hour and four minutes into the crying game, um, is uh, the love interest, who is the former girlfriend or partner uh, of a hostage um, British soldier uh, reveals to her new kind of love interest, Stephen Ray's character, who is the Irish terrorist quote that uh, kidnapped Forrest Whitaker's character. Um, 
falls in love with and reveals that she has a penis. And that, of course, rocked the entire uh, United States because transness, you know, barely had any yeah. vocabulary to go along with it at that time. In fact, you know, transgender wasn't uh, in the language. Um, instead, transsexual and transvestite was, which have since, you know, been discarded, uh, especially by the LGBTQIA community. So I think that if there's one thing, and this is kind of looping me back to explaining my history with the film, because I had seen Ace Ventura first as like a 12-year-old American boy. Uh, and then I think there was also kind of an allusion to the crying game in one of the later Naked Gun movies. Is that correct? You think so? Yeah. Yeah, 33 like and Naked a third. Gun, 33 and a third, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, like, of course, I'm growing up um, with this, like, hyper-masculine, homophobic, transphobic, suburban American lifestyle, uh, which is definitely maybe not as conservative as, say, like, growing up in Singapore, where this kind of stuff is blocked, but it's, like, not censored, and yet it's still very much, like, we're supposed to be, as uh, the, you know, hegemony, as the cis straight white male uh, that this is unusual, right? That this yeah. is oh, yeah. shocking. Um, and it wasn't until like I started diving deeper. I had actually seen um, Neil Jordan's movie, The Butcher Boy. Yeah, I like I grabbed it off of the shelf at Blockbuster, and <laughs> this was <laughs> yeah. I've, I've so I've talked about this a little bit of like my discovery of like auteurism in you know my late teens, and then being like, oh, that was kind of a weird interesting movie i don't know if i liked it but i want to find out about this director and so then i found out that he had directed the crying game which i had only known from references in these you know transphobic parodies and then i i watched it and you know at least for me <laughs> as like a a young guy in america it it felt pretty eye-opening it's very problematic looking back now in 2022 but i think for a lot of people even as it spurred a lot more transphobia um because it just simply brought it out into the open it also is in some circles anyways seen as like a kind of progressive marker which ties into our whole existential aspect of thrillers because it is kind of a weird film because it's on the one hand like i mentioned earlier a political thriller and same thing like ira like i probably still didn't know like i barely knew what ira because of the um the devil's own that brad pitt harrison yeah. Ford movie uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and was a uh, was there an ira plot in blown away as well the tommy lee jones movie uh maybe i, I might be misremembering that yeah, yeah. uh but anyways, oh, yeah was, i think yeah yeah i think it was yeah. it was tangential at best. at best but then this got so overshadowed and so like it i i have to say even though it's kind of a mess of a movie it was kind of important in like my upbringing getting it you know uh, peering into that um that part of the world that part of that subculture that was very much still oppressed and discriminated against at the time. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I think the thing that like stood out to me when, on the first watch here is I, I knew all that and I had the same, uh, let's call it, it's baggage. It's a lot of baggage because yeah. we grew up in the same city and yeah, transphobic, homophobic. That was like every day was like that. Um, and what the thing that blew me away with this is I was like, uh, when the, the reveal is there, it doesn't really feel like a reveal to me. 
No. It just felt like a normal scene in a movie. And like, yeah, okay, it, yeah, it's a little bit, I guess, different than what we normally see in, in most films. But like, it didn't really seem like a... And also, because I we kind of grew up with the marketing for this movie, too. And this thing was marketed in a very specific way about like there's this secret or something. And it was like, I was watching it, it was like, well, this is just kind of like, not like a throwaway scene or anything like that, but like it wasn't as monumental or important as the sort of um, chatter and dialogue and discourse around the film made it seem to be. Yeah. Because it's kind of just, it's an obviously an important part to what's going on, but there's so much more happening in this movie. And this is just another piece that kind of fits into it. True, um, true. I don't know if you feel that, like Tasha. Did, did you kind of feel that way, or how did you feel about the the movie in general? How, how did you receive it? Mm, so basically, I started reading the notes <laughs> that you guys prepared, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. then uh, I kind of stopped when uh, I got to the part where you know the reception on the twist or something, right? There was that that subsection, and I was like, oh crap! Like, oh yeah. no, I shouldn't be reading this right <laughs> before before the movie, right? So then I was like, okay, I won't I won't read anymore. Then I went to watch it first. So. Um, um, but I know that basically a lot of the film was when I was watching interviews after that with the cast, um, the first thing that they do would always be to kind of introduce the film with regard to like this, this how they say it, right? The phrasing is a twist, right? This reveal, yes, yeah, yeah. right? Exactly. You know, which I think is kind of common for the time. I mean, like if you think of like M. Night Shyamalan's right like yeah. six cents right i mean it's the same thing as a gimmick right it's like you know every now everyone wants to see it because you know it's like what is this you know review right that we're gonna get uh, you know in in the movie so um i guess that's you know how it was for me i wasn't surprised um i kind of knew from the beginning yeah but i i mean i wasn't sure so i think that that that's that was what made it interesting i think that's what yeah. created the suspense but i also didn't really you know it wasn't really like a oh my god kind of thing right because i think yeah. you know ultimately they're just people right so i just for me i think it was more interesting to kind of see of uh, how fergus would reveal his secret to yeah. do like that was the, yeah. the I was wondering how that was going to unfold more than you know the other one yeah so uh yeah it, it, I mean it, I wasn't surprised um but I think um because I suspected that it kind of kept um it did give it that kind of suspense it did add it yeah so I um I think I was reading some reviews after that, right? And um, I think when they did some polling or something like that, I think some of the audience also suspected. So I think some of the critics' kind of feedback was that, you know, um, because we know as much as Fergus, then, you know, there isn't that suspense because, you know, he doesn't know until midway, right? Uh, compared to, like, I think when they compared it to, like, Vertical, right? And, you know, the idea is yeah. that, Vertigo, we know more than, you know, um, mm. Stewart's character, right, mm. at some point. So then there's that suspense, right? Um, but I think that, you know, audiences were polled and I think um, about, I think they said like the numbers were like 20, 30% actually kind of suspected. So it also, I think, helped to kind of create that suspense. But I think even if you didn't know, I don't think it mattered because you, I think the the key secret would be, you know, would Fergus review who he right. is, right? You know, so I think that kind of drove, I think, the suspense. Uh, it helped, you know, um, keep us invested, I think, in the film's journey. So, yeah, that was, like, how I felt watching it. Yeah, um, like, that, that's a really good point that 
you have essentially the traditional like narrative where in the third act, Fergus does reveal, you know, that he was the one that held Jody hostage and is at least somewhat, if not still very much responsible for his death. Um, he, and yet, yeah, I was also thinking that, especially in my rewatch, because I had, you know, forgotten so much of it since I watched it in maybe like 98, 99, uh, of that, the IRA hostage taking subplot. And yet, because of like you said earlier, Dan, the baggage surrounding that, I still got kind of wrapped up. I listened to a, a, a couple podcasts um, that have already uh, kind of dissected this film. And, you know, narratively, it is strange that it does come at the one hour and four minute mark, because then that, like you had, you guys both mentioned is like, it becomes not as, you know, M night Shyamalan, right? Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's, I don't think twist or reveal is the correct terminology, at least, you know, narratively speaking, based on what we've, you know, watched all the way since Hitchcock and thought about traditionally what a twist or reveal is, but that was all the marketing, right? And even also in the reviews, I think that's an interesting tidbit, Natasha, that, you know, 20 or 30%, uh, you know, figured it out before Fergus did. And, you know, especially in 2022, watching back, it's like, Fergus, take a look at what bar you keep coming to. Yeah. Yeah. Why would that not stick out to him? Yeah, like I just like what? How would you be that dense that you wouldn't? wouldn't like, but I kind of like it though. Like, I yeah. feel that he he was just looking at the person, right? Right. You yeah. know, like I think uh, he wasn't really very hung up on, uh, I guess, where he was, right? So I guess the the obsession element, right, that I think Jordan spoke about, right? Like he wanted to create this mm-hmm. triangular moment of obsession, right? Um, you yeah. know, so he was just so fixated. You know, uh, and I think, uh, you know, charmed by Dill, you know, and uh, attracted to Dill, you know. I mean, yeah, I was as well, right? Uh, I think there's something so attractive about Dill, um, you know, yeah. So I, I think that's what kind of also made it interesting. Um, I think the film tried to kind of uh, block out, I think, some segments of the of the bar, like yes. it, it chose what yeah. to show us as well. So yes, it's like yeah. after he finds out, then, you know, we see a different side to the bar, yeah. you know. So it's hinted at, I think Cole kind of mentions it. He nearly mentions it at one point to him, right, you know. Um, but then he gets interrupted and he doesn't continue. So that yeah. all these elements, I think, kind of come together to create that suspense, right? You know, that there's something about Dill that Fergus doesn't know. Right. I mean, that's that's all we know and we kind of suspect. Yeah. Um, one thing that I came across in doing some research on this was you know, how this story came to be. Why did Neil Jordan pick this? And I thought it was really he said something really fascinating in this BFI 25th anniversary interview. Yeah, uh, that's up on YouTube. And he was basically like the backstory here is like this story has been told a few times before. Specifically, like um, the capturing of a soldier, um, holding him hostage, and then them basically building a friendship or camaraderie, and then that person, uh, the captor, having uh, has to kill that person, and then you know, then going back to the hometown and trying to reconnect with, in most cases, the wife. And Jordan had these ideas; he had these stories going around, and he said he basically kept writing the first third of the movie over and over again and he couldn't get past when the main character goes back to london (laughs) to meet the wife 
And then he basically said, well, then I put a hairdresser in it and she would be the wife. And then he goes, the breakthrough was, uh, when, um, I made her a man essentially is what he says. And then he wrote the script in three weeks after that point. I found that to be very fascinating because as we're talking about this movie, we're making that part of it, um, the transness of that character, not important. It doesn't seem like it's important to us that much. But like to, to Neil Jordan, it seemed like that was his creative spark here. Right. Did you, what do you guys make of that? Is that because I, 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 that's where the, the movie um, starts to become a little bit problematic on some level, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it is really heightening that otherness of Dill on some level, but at the same time, not. He's like really walking on a tightrope with it. And yeah, he's building suspense. He's making it a reveal. And nowadays it probably hits a little bit different because we're more, we're more used to it. But I don't know. What do you guys, is he like playing with fire and sort of the way that he builds that suspense about it though? <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's definitely like a brazenness to Jordan and that's kind of been both his, uh, attractive quality as well as you know his destructive quality throughout his career because he's he's made some really interesting movies like the crying game and the butcher boy um and mona lisa but he's also made some like really stink big stinkers like (laughs) he it it fell apart in his most recent movie greta um which had a fantastic cast and interesting premise and just like was complete trash and then he also did it (laughs) In the late 90s uh, with Annette Benning and In Dreams, uh, he's just kind of the kind, he's the, 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 the type of filmmaker to not worry about being careful. And <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the vibe I got, especially upon rewatching. And even like, you know, in, he, he did a lot of press, not only at the time of the release, but also in these anniversary pieces for the film um, in also in the late nineties when it was selected as uh, in for the BFI um, uh, best British films of all time. And he, uh, there's a, a, a kind of fascinating, but also cringeworthy interview he did with uh, Queerty um, uh, about the anniversary of the crying game and also the anniversary of interview of the vampire, which has, you know, arguably become even a bigger touchstone for the LGBTQIA community. Um, in its uh, legacy. And he also in that interview mentions uh, another uh, LGBTQIA uh, character that he uh, created or that he adapted actually from a novel. Um, Cillian Murphy played this character in breakfast on Pluto. And he like kind of prized at the interviewer who is, who very clearly um, identifies themselves as queer uh, early on in the interview. And it's almost like he's got this kind of like, Fergus, this kind of obsession, this kind of uh, dangerous intrigue that comes off as borderline offensive, even in 2017 for its 25th anniversary. So I feel like he, you know, the whole, whatever the the idiom is, the dog hasn't changed his stripes or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I, listening to him speak about it, I think he spoke about how I think a lot of the filmmaking at the time was very, I think, stagnant. Like, I think he felt like it wasn't doing anything or it wasn't challenging anything or it wasn't really exploring anything. So I think um, 
maybe I think that's the kind of intention, I think, to to spark, I think, some kind of conversation, um, you know, beyond just, I guess, the, the mind-numbing experience of just, you know, sitting down and escaping with a movie, right? Like, um, you know, can a movie make you think beyond, I guess, that experience, you know? I mean, after I watched it, I couldn't stop thinking about it because I couldn't, I couldn't mm-hmm. quite pin down how I felt about it. I felt really ambivalent, yeah. right? You know, because... On one hand, you know, I think rewatching it uh, gives it such a new lens, you know, because I went back sure. to rewatch some of the earlier scenes, right, where he was, you know, with uh, they were having some kind of flirtation, right, you know. So, uh, yeah. and when I first watched it, I sensed the flirtation, but I didn't know if I was overreading it or, you know, or if um, Jody was just kind of using that as a way to kind of, you know. Um, uh, convince his captor to release him, right? So yeah. I wasn't sure what to make of that banter, you know, was it flirting, what was it? I, I had no idea, right? You know, so I thought that it could just be a way for Jody to kind of, you know, let his captor, like, let his guard down in a sense, right? You know, get to know the man and, you know, he won't see you as a prisoner anymore, you know? So, uh, but then when I go, went back to rewatch it, you know, there are things that Jody says that mm-hmm. makes it so interesting because he says, like, you know, uh, let, me, let me read what I wrote. Um, he he actually says when he shows um the photograph to Fergus, he actually says that she wouldn't suit you. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and he's like, why not? You know, <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, there's a lot of discussion about this, right? Um, and at that point, you know, you just kind of think that, you know, um, he's just talking mainly, you know, just as, yeah, I mean, she's not your type, right? Yeah, but then after that, when we go into the, you know, into deeper into the film, we realize, oh, there's a lot of this conversation where Jody is operating on, you know, uh, like somewhere else, right, compared to where Fergus was, right, in the conversation. So that was quite interesting to me. I think rewatching it, I think, has, makes it richer in some way, I guess, the, the, the writing. Yeah, so that was what was interesting for me. Absolutely. There's uh, one piece of analysis that really stood out to me uh, looking back on the film. And I mean, at the time, I feel like that whole aspect was lost, the homoeroticism between uh, uh, Jody and Fergus. Like, even though Jordan is like, (laughs) it's not even subtext, (laughs) it's basically text. Are you talking Um, about that particular scene? (laughs) Yes, when when Jody is asking him for help. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and it's also, like like you said earlier about the bar scene, everything is very deliberately framed. He's not necessarily, like, an expert compositional filmmaker, um, but he, like, knows the... it's to the it's symbolism to the point of absurdity, like the the op- the cold opening clip with the goldfish. Like it's he he does not shy away from, um, you know, having fun with even a scene where you know there's an IRA, uh, um, uh, soldier and a British soldier that you know are in a life or death stakes situation. He, if the shot is framed so that, yeah. Fergus literally has to hold Jody's penis to help him pee in a way and like hold his hand. So he leans forward. It looks very similar to how it would be if they were having anal sex. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's definitely intentional. Right. Yeah. That was an yeah. observation by the way, to give credit, uh, Sierra Maloney from the Sunday, uh, has a great, um, retrospective piece on the crying game. 
Um, it's funny, uh, it's funny that, because oh, he says it's just meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and that's also kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the viewer. I feel like even if it's yeah. subconscious about the reveal later with Dill's character is like yeah. everybody made such a big deal about this, but like it's just Jordan's very he's like, very cheeky. Yeah, like, he yeah. It, it's um, it's funny you guys were bringing this up because like I love going back to like right when the film came out and looking at interviews. Yes. It's just so fascinating to see before this movie got famous because I was looking at the run of this film, obviously in the UK, I think it came out in the fall of 92, did basically very little. Uh, and Ireland didn't do much at all. Um, but then over here, Miramax picks it up. And, you know, Miramax is pretty famous for kind of bringing indie house movies to the mainstream. And this mm-hmm. is one of the sort of paradigms of that. Um, but it's great to see interviews before it got famous and Neil Jordan did one in January of 1993. Uh, and they tend to be way more open about what they were doing and their intentions than like after it becomes famous because they come a little bit like closed off. Right. right. Exactly. Natasha, what you're saying, he says in this interview, I structured the script so that everything that happens in the second part is a mirror image of what happened in the first part. Mm -hmm. Uh, if Fergus had been emotionally brave enough in the first encounter, he could have saved Jordy's life. Fergus is confronted with the situation in the second encounter where he actually has to protect this woman. So he literally did, he mirrored it exactly kind of, um, you know, to that first part. And it's that, that's not something that when I first watched it, I did not, I I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't pick up on most of that. I just thought it was kind of, uh, you know, genre, genre work type stuff like create like a conflict create guns blood violence and then i'm gonna like add a lot of subtext to it but i think it's way more clever than that yeah um and and in those scenes you can definitely tell yeah it it, it, like you said chris it it is text but it's also kind of wrapped within genre conventions yeah right and so it's like that's what i love when movies do that that's like one of my favorite things when you make a really great genre work but you just you stuff it with stuff you stuff it with things that you can deconstruct and pull apart and the more you pull pull it apart the more you find uh and this definitely feels like one of those movies i mean i think one of the i think what helped i think in the reading right and i think he's it's so interesting what he did is that you know in like the dreams i think that he has of jody um prior i think to meeting bill and after you know he meets bill um he imagines, you know, he has this dream of Jody and like his cricket attire, right? You know, and he's like <laughs> drawing, uh, like the cricket thing. I don't know what it's called, but uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, they, that's that thing, right? And I found yeah. it so interesting because initially, when he, when I first watched it, I read it as guilt. I read it as yeah. you know that his guilt, right, in letting Jody die, right? But mm-hmm. you know, after after like a certain point when I went and rewatch it, I was thinking that it could also be viewed as desire, right? Because he, oh, totally. he was, yeah, he was looking at Jody basically at this like peak of virility, right? Like he wasn't uh, seeing him the way he was towards the end of his life, right? You know, um, the begging or, you know, so that would be more guilt, right? He was looking at him basically at like peak virility, right? Him doing a sport, you know, and that's what kept uh, going on in his mind, right? And I think when, you know, I think when Dill was, uh, giving him a blowjob as well, right? Uh, that yep. was the thing that was playing in his mind. Yeah, so um, 
Yeah, so I thought that that's um I think that was one of the very interesting things about the film that that ability to kind of you know give it such a uh make it such a rewarding second rewatch I think. I think a lot of times um very few films can do that I think that you gain so much from watching it again, you know, and seeing everything in new light, you know, with new eyes I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a um there's for me because I know way more about the IRA uh, <laughs> and about being you weren't an trans. IRA expert before this movie, Chris. No, <laughs> but I am hooked. There's a there's a podcast called The Troubles, and it's like 32 episodes. I'm, oh my god! I'm already three down. Before. Anyways, uh, <laughs> um, that mirroring that like you mentioned earlier, Dan, and also kind of goes hand in hand with what you're saying, Natasha, and the the concept of desire and like being like wanting another human for the, for like who they are rather than like their categorization or their identity. Um, it it played, it plays really well, even if it is still problematic and messy, because I do want to like make note that the film, as I mentioned earlier, for some people it's seen as progressive and for some other people, including a lot of trans people, it's, uh, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, a sore spot. Um, the director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, which uh, goes over the history of transness in cinema, um, Sam Feeder, uh, he spoke uh, last year um, more in depth. He mentions the crying game briefly in the film, but um, specifically this idea of you know uh, the the image of the protagonist uh, ha- seeing the penis and then immediately vomiting. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. that that arguably also kind of plays against this whole what I think is pretty laid out. Like you said, Natasha. Like he's ma- not just coming to a realization that Dill has a penis, but coming to the realization that he's queer, right? And yeah. that mm. he has these desires, and they don't line up with his identity as it's probably been you know hammered into him as like you know, assumedly Irish Catholic dude. That's that's a lot of layers right there. Exactly. Exactly. So then like that's why I think ultimately, even though it does feel kind of messy and is is certainly problematic in retrospect, that layering and that mirroring really does work. um, And you wouldn't expect it to, which makes maybe makes sense. goes back to what you were saying, Dan, about uh, Jordan uh, uh, kind of having that spark of realizing that he wanted to, make that part of Dill's character because then it, it, it does. It's like this diptych kind of like, you know, full metal jacket or the triptych of moonlight where it's like, you get to see uh, our protagonist change subtly, but he doesn't necessarily, it's, it's never outwardly open. It's not like he's having a conversation with Dill and he's like, Oh, you're human. Just like Jody turned out to be like, you know, yeah. Like you would, it, it especially like you would today with like a, a a trite Oscar bait type film. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because it's like uh, the ending of the film. You know, he's in prison and like they're separated by by glass. And in the same interview where you talked about mirroring, mm-hmm. he goes, uh, "I uh, leave him in a glass cage." Yeah. Right. In my mind, it's a perfect marriage. Love is something quite different from sexuality. Uh, sexuality has everything to do with love, but love does not necessarily have anything to do with sexuality. I wanted to make a love story that actually came out of circumstance itself. For Fergus to be a lover, 
He has to be making a choice that is beyond his sexual issues. Whether their relationship becomes sexual, I guess the audience has to decide that. Which is just like, that's just like, wow. That's like, that's a lot to unpack just from that statement. Yeah. But I think that the opening of it, I leave him in a glass cage like that. Like, or, um, there's this separation at the end yeah. with his character where he feels still, he's still divided or something inside. Mm. You know, yeah. it's almost like he hasn't fully, he saves her and takes the rap for her and goes to prison, right? But there's still, it's not the happy, you know, happy ending, right? Right. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I think when it comes to identity, right, sometimes, you know, we we subsume ourselves into all these categories, right? That it's difficult, I think, to see yourself without them. You know, who am yeah. I outside of these things that I have come to see myself as part of for so long? It's yeah. difficult, right? I think, you know, um, so even though he recognizes that he loves this person, I think there is a difficulty, I think, to um, see himself, I think, apart, um, you know, from, I guess, even the political affiliations that he's been a part of for so long, you know. I think what's interesting is that, you know, um, even though this is a political thriller, I think the idea is that, you know, by the end of it, Fergus prioritizes personal relationships over these kind of broader characterizations, right? By taking yeah. the rap, yeah. by, you know, um, choosing uh, to save Dale, you know, compared to um, his inaction with Jody, right? I think kind of shows that, you know. So I, I think for me, that was the the strength of it, um, you know, the idea of how uh, the looking part of that characterizations and then, you know, being able to kind of prioritize the personal, you know, over all these other things. I think, I mean, I think that's sometimes we, we lose sight you know, of, of that, isn't it? Like we tend to, you know, we, we can yeah. prioritize so much things that are bigger outside of ourselves for so long that it's, it's, you know, it's difficult, I think, to kind of size down and then choose, you know, something else. So, um, yeah, because, I mean, I think I had this discussion with my husband after I watched it, right? And I was kind of yeah. saying, you know, do does he really, um, you know, sometimes make a choice, right? Because sometimes the circumstances make a choice for him, yeah. Yeah. you know? So, uh, we were having this kind of little debate about that, you know? But then my husband said, sometimes the circumstances choose for you. You know, so uh, I mean, that was also interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's he also like I kind of got stuck on it at the beginning of the second act that like he doesn't just like go for a weekend to London. Right. To like fulfill his honor to Jody and watch over Dill. But like he legit like separates himself completely from the IRA and lives now in the land of the people that, you know, oppressed and colonized and like, uh, imperialistically oppressed his people. And now you're getting this, uh, new version of that playing out, but with the queer community. And the other aspect that we haven't even mentioned yet is, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot we haven't, we hadn't had time to touch on, but like, uh, this is also very much on the tail end of the AIDS crisis uh, in the Western world, right? And it's very, like, throwaway, like, and clearly Jordan didn't do his research or, like, he wanted Dill to, like, be kind of lying or speaking in half-truths towards the end when it re- it's revealed that Dill's on medication and uh, um, 
whether and you know what is the the term that she uses like a uh, blood condition or something oh yeah this okay. on me? Right? yeah oh, I, yeah oh at first she says blood condition and then he and then he asks what's it called and she says on we oh <laughs> yeah oh. Uh, that but, totally flew over my head wow yeah, right yeah. it's a, but yeah it's just like a bizarre like kind of word salad dialogue closing up with the addition of the convoluted you know judge attempted assassination <laughs> oh, god. oh my god i mean yeah when when that peter guy like ran into the street and just <laughs> i was just like what <laughs> yeah, Dude, yeah. Like, the, i mean i don't know like that was director i don't think right? no 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 not, definitely not i yeah. mean there were some very night. 90s things happening like the explosions yes. you know yes. um even jody's death i, I thought it was like oh my god <laughs> the what yeah, yeah i was like oh my goodness yeah <laughs> so um it, i mean it was it was it shocked me <laughs> it was shocking you know but yeah. uh i was just like oh you know sometimes i mean i guess it's a very 90s thing like bordering on melodrama sometimes and yes. yeah. you know yeah. the hyperbole right yeah so yeah, yeah. Well, the thing i mean do you guys when you watched it does it seem like an indie movie to you? I mean, the thing that blows me away about this, oh yeah, it was basically what four million dollars uh, budget to do this. Yeah, and like they had to cobble money together as they were filming it because no one would back the movie. Yeah, I mean, Jordan That's was directing like directing theater at night and like had allegations of literally like stealing the cash from the cash register <laughs> at the theater <laughs> oh, to, to buy props and stuff for the crying game. <laughs> but it, it doesn't. I don't know. Like to me, when I saw it, I, I would not. It definitely feels like a Miramax indie movie, without a doubt. Yeah, it has yeah. that type of yeah. feel. Yes. But there's a like the craftsmanship with it, it. It was very tight, like across the board. And I was like, this does not feel like a movie that was cobbled together with like stolen money from no, you know, petty cash. You know what I mean? Like it's it, it has a sense of accomplishment and polish to it that I, I thought was very surprising. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and especially when you look at the budget and like I didn't know it performed that well either. I just yeah. thought I thought it was a, a smaller movie that like had a lot of cachet because of you know this you know reveal or secret or whatever but no it, it was incredibly successful here at least yeah. in the united states um the rest of the world it didn't really do much but in the united states it did like 62 million which translates to about 138 million dollars at the yeah. box office that's i mean that's insane I think, I mean, I think it was the actors as well, you know. I yeah. mean, I think oh, at yeah. that point, Jay Davidson was, like, unknown, right? He was, like... Totally unknown, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Like, even Steven Rea was a surprising, I think, protagonist. But yeah. I think he, he he was so compelling to watch. I don't know what it is about him. Yeah. I mean, there is something very attractive <laughs> about, about him. I don't know. <laughs> well, he's yeah, very so, good being silent, right? Just yeah. kind of moving through the scene. Yeah. There's something compelling about him. Like you could uh I mean a lot of the time he's not really like doing much. I mean like but yeah. that the flirting no. <laughs> part, yeah, the flirting part, right? You know, I think when he when when they joke about it and then Jody's like, um, you know, I know that was very difficult for you to do, right? And he's like, Oh, the pleasure's all mine, right? You know, and then, I mean I don't know, the way he delivered it, it was just like kind yeah. of sex sexy, but like yeah, weird. Yeah. I don't know. I uh he made me question myself. <laughs> yeah, something very uh compelling about him yeah in his silence yeah right. so it's a very interesting choice i think yeah 
and we we should mention, uh, especially because I I did kind of a teaser tweet about this that uh, it was probably like Stephen Ray's bringing a lot of his own personal baggage to this role since his wife oh, at yeah. the time, who he yeah. divorced in two thousand three, but uh, he was married to an IRA soldier. Um, he you know explicitly said in public, including in press to even like Entertainment Weekly in the nineties, that he did not share the same political views as his wife. But uh, that's got to be kind of uh, uh, daunting to kind of take on this role that not only has this you know big um, scene where your love interest uh, reveals to have different genitalia than you'd expect, and like having these homoerotic moments with Forrest Whitaker, but also like playing in an IRA soldier when you know how the world largely feels about the IRA and you, and yet you're, it's right there at home when you, when you uh, get in bed at night. So I think that there's, it it reminds me a bit, actually, we talk, we'll talk in a later episode this season about uh, Roy Scheider's performance in Sorcerer. Um, A lot of silence, a lot of big, sad eyes. (laughs) <laughs> and and <laughs> even though the character is not necessarily drawn as as well as maybe I had I would have liked, um, yeah, he does a lot with it, and so yeah. it, I it, I understand why you know Jordan keeps coming back to <laughs> Stephen Ray and um, yeah, it, it's impressive. <laughs> I think there's like a the, the whole like there's a rawness to this movie underneath it all. Mm-hmm. That just it's just like it's very kinetic the whole thing. It's like you could tell that like. Despite the fact that it was well shot and well edited, all that kind of stuff, there is like the, his performance and all the performances. Um, yeah, there's just a yeah. there's a raw aggression to the whole thing that like I don't know for how we're making this movie, but we're making it. You know, right? And right. You can kind of feel yeah. it as an undercurrent yeah. to the whole thing. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to our chaser film? You guys yes. ready to do that? You guys want to talk about House of Games, the 1987 uh, David Mamet film, which I had never seen before, but I selected. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I yeah, feel like you guys are good. taking me on some like journey here because I, I, I didn't watch like both films. I feel like such a, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, we, uh, we like to have fun on this show. Uh, we, we like to stretch ourselves a bit. Uh, so, so, so where did you, you pick this, this from? No, I, I, you know, before he became a MAGA idiot, um, cancel culture, uh, David Mamet was, oh, I didn't know he became a manga. Oh trumper. God, yeah. Uh, he's, wow. like, he's, he's like a prime, you know, interview subject on Breitbart. Gross. It's, That's it, he's, so bad. Why? He's, he's not, a, he's not a good man. No. Um, oh no. Okay. <laughs> but I was, I was very much like border seeking of obsession. I was borderline obsessed with, um, Mamet movies. Yeah. Um, uh, especially as a, a a young guy that like gets impressed by like you know <laughs> twisty uh, scripts and uh, you know big male mean energy <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and like so I had known that it was his debut but I had just like I don't know I, I I didn't actually realize until I watched it and then did research know how like canonical it had essentially become like uh not only does it have its own criterion release but uh, a lot of people like look to it as mammoth's best film and as really? uh like one of the you know key uh, uh introductions of uh like uh both the protagonist and the audience being pulled in through a, a series of cons which is a recurring theme in a lot of his movies yeah. um so yeah, I was 
I was very excited that you, you had thrown this on the list um, because I had always wanted to see it, but didn't realize how much cachet it has had over the years, especially, you know, uh, in, in recent years, I think, um, perhaps before Mammoth came out. Um, I think what sparked him to like start becoming more um, aggressively and vocally right wing was um, the uh, quote cancellation of Harvey Weinstein, which is interesting because uh, we just talked about a Miramax movie. (laughs) Yeah, it all it's all connected. uh, I don't know what it where had you. So this was first wash for all of us. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa! Wow! Yeah, I was, and I'd never heard of it before. I, I, the reason I selected it as we're, you know, because our theme is existential thrillers, mm-hmm. and that's kind of specific, right? There's a lot of thrillers out there, but there's not a lot that are like super cerebral and like play with your expectations, you know, play with the protagonist's <laughs> like mindset and perspective. And I was, yeah, I'm glad that I picked it because it feels like a, a really good example of an existential thriller. Um. Yeah, I was blown away by it. I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, I don't know what you guys. What do you guys think? Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I think if we if we think about the crying game, I think I'm a bit more ambivalent on yeah. on you know whether I like it or not. Or I mean, yeah. I think it's a good film, but um, I don't know where I stand. I think I'm a bit ambivalent because some parts are problematic, or you know, yeah. um, yeah, make me think. You know, so but I think uh. This one I was drawn in immediately. It was um, I love the vibe, uh, the yeah. the atmosphere. I don't know. I even like the way that uh, is it Lindsay Krauss, like the yeah. way that she delivered the lines. I know she gets a lot of. Uh, I mean, when I was reading um, about it in like some Reddit threads, right? I think some people were kind of not very complimentary about her performance. The, you know, I think the way she delivered the lines and I think the monotony of it, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I really liked it. Um, I think it helped me, uh, I guess, the audience identify with her in some ways. She feels such so much like a blank slate, but yeah. at the same time, so very readable in a lot of ways as well. So I, 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 I was pulled in. I mean, I felt like, you know, I was in, even though like, you know, at some, uh, I feel like the way the movie is structured is that it allows you to be a few steps ahead of the con. Like yes. you realize that it's happening while it's happening, but at the same time, you can't help but be fascinated on, you know, uh, where this is all going. So I thought that that, that was like the, the best part about it, you know, like, you know, that it's happening, but you, you still want to kind of know uh, what, what, how it ends, right. Or, you know, yeah. what, what happens in the duration. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think yeah, it was paced really well as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like super tight on the pacing and yeah, it's one of those, I don't know. I just, I, in the same way I wanted to, I knew I was being conned, right. Yeah. But like her, mm-hmm. like, the protagonist, like you're in on it. You want that thrill. You yeah. want to see how it plays out. What I didn't expect was the ending which I felt like the entire movie was pulling me in, making me a part of the con, just like she was with the group. And at the end, I felt like I was conned. I felt like Mamet conned me. It, like, did the old switcheroo with the with the character at the end, where I was like, wait, wait what? I don't even... Uh, because the entire time I was watching it, I was viewing her kind of as the victim. Yes, right? yes. And then at the end, it's just yes. like, 
the it's like this swap and it's very sudden and i was like oh that that's that's his point all along he's trying to really he's stringing us along you know he's mike at the the billiards house or whatever like picking up people picking up cons doing short cons like he's mammoth's doing that to us Mm -hmm. um i don't know chris what'd you think about this as a man (laughs) i shouldn't say that yeah no i I think uh there, there, there are parts of the film that are just like I think objectively great, yeah. uh, but what I kind of stray from more, and I certainly w- like this would have been right in my wheelhouse when I got obsessed with like Glengarry Glenn Ross and Spanish Prisoner, and even like up to Red Belt, which I at least when it came out was my uh, favorite film of the year and my favorite. Mammoth film so far. Um, State in Maine is also fantastic, more on the uh, comedy side of things. Um, But there's something, I have to admit, there's something that just like rubbed me the wrong way, uh, especially at the culmination of the film. And there's two, there's two aspects to it. One, which I think is just, uh, which is unintentional and maybe just like a reading that I have to <laughs> wrestle with. And another one, which I think is just uh, kind of unfortunate. Um, uh, I'll start with the first, the first, which I is more forgivable, but uh, still just like made me kind of frustrated. Uh, and we mentioned Shyamalan earlier uh, and he kind of did this similarly in both split and glass. It's like, there's a, there's a very unfortunate read on like the, psychiatry as a profession i feel like in this movie and i i and i don't like it and uh, you know you could very much make a fair argument that it's it's not the profession at whole like it's this character especially when you look at you know how the ending plays out and you know she's kind of just becoming who she's meant to be all along but um uh, I, I I feel like, especially knowing how Mamet has swung politically over the years, he feels like, and this is kind of ties into the second uh, prong of it for me, uh, where the movie doesn't totally work, is like he feels very entrenched in this um, like mannered and stoic and like you should be able to like, he wants to be, he he's playing God with his characters all the time through all these cons. And he thinks that we should be able to like stand on our own two legs too. And on the one hand, like that's admirable and it's narratively impressive. I also should make sure to note that, you know, Ricky J who plays one of the con men and uh, became like a essentially mammoth's right hand man over the years is known for very much never taking a writing credit, despite the fact that, as like a professional magician, literally um, throughout his acting career, um, it comes up with al- almost all of the actual cons in the Mamet movies uh, it, it, to the point where like he had Mamet had attempted to write a con for um, just like the example bit where they're like on the street eating hot dogs and yeah, yeah. Uh, letting Lindsay Grouse's character um uh, get like embedded into the world, fake embedded into the world of con men. Um, and it was like a secret of the trade that Jay had told Mamet. And then like on set, Jay's like, by the way, we can't do that. I'll come up with something else that's improvised. Like his whole bit with the envelope and the dollar 
Yeah. Like the dollar yeah. was supposed to be a prop for another con that they were going to reveal, but Jay wanting to be true to the secrets and code of the, you know, trade of magicians and con men and illusionists uh, just came up with that whole thing on the spot. So there's, there's part of the, uh, of the impressive, the impressiveness of this script. I think that um, we owe a lot to Jay um, doesn't, take away from the fact that the film's uh, very impressive in many other ways. But, okay, last point. Uh, how do we... <laughs> just based off this movie, and you can, if you've got other mammoth scripts to um, to fall back on or to, to boost up your point of view, how do we feel like mammoth feels about women? <laughs> Not good, I don't think. Right? <laughs> no, I don't... I mean... Okay, you, you guys see first. <laughs> I was just I, I just say that because I was very put off by how much the words broad and bitch are used throughout uh, this, this movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean yeah. the men are very particular kind of men, right? Sure. You yeah. know. Um I mean I even in the crying game I felt like the language was quite loaded oh, yeah. as well. You know. Yes, yeah. it is. So um yeah, I guess I guess for for me, I think watching it, right? I think uh, ultimately, I think it was easy for us to kind of view as a victim because I think, yeah. you know, I mean, the gender kind of allowed that to happen, right? I mean, I generally we we were supposed to kind of see her as this victim to this, um, you know, gang of men, right? Who are you know con men, right? But I think what was interesting is that. Um, for for most of the film, we we know who they are. You know, the con men are con men. They 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 stay the same, right? They don't change. You know, um, they've never pretended to be anything else but that, right? But I think for for her, what was interesting is that you know that there are these layers to her that we don't quite we're not privy to, right? Because we are so used to kind of seeing her in this role where she falls for things. You know, and I think that's also sides of herself that she's kind of repressed, mm. you know. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that she's like, oh, this dodgy person <laughs> at the end where she's like, you know. I think the idea is that a lot of life, I think, is driven by impulse and control, right? And I think it's how we manage the the in-between, right? So I think for her, she's kind of, you know, put herself into this box right i think she's kind of deprived herself of you know a life of um being driven by these kind of things right because she wrote a book about it right she know how she know how it works right she's seen people who get addicted who become driven you know by their impulses right so she's kind of removed herself from all of that right um you know only to kind of see that in doing so she's kind of you know become when you when your life is devoid of thrills of you know anything that you can kind of impulsively do i guess then you become you become more prone to addiction right and um so i think the ending kind of revealed so there's like revelation and you know a movement away i think about yeah you know yeah i mean i mean the, <laughs> the shooting's not great but <laughs> i think the the yeah i think the the idea here is that you know we get to see i think more than we we bargain for so i thought that was interesting i mean i think hmm. that you know women can be villains in a piece or you know they can they can have more layers than you know yeah i, I mean 
it it was not where I expected it was going. Yeah, I thought she was gonna like swap the bags. <laughs> that, that, that's where <laughs> my mind was. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, she's gonna like that's what she was trying to do, right? But that was not her end game at all. So yeah. that was that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, she comes out on top, right? She's the winner. The <laughs> in a way. To, to paraphrase right? I mean, Beyonce. In this, in this cinematic universe, she's she's going to get away with it. She's not going to get caught. And she kind of gets to continue her, her way of life. She she got to dabble in that world. But I don't really understand where her character is going to go. Which is sort of like... But at the same time, there's sort of like... She's she's victorious, right? It feels like to me when I see I it. I mean, the the wardrobe change is significant, right? It's deliberate, right? I think the idea yeah. is that she yeah, allows... She's allowing color into her life, you know? Yes. Before, she, she's always wearing these kind of structured suits. It's very gray, very typical, right? Um, you know, so I think ultimately she was living a life devoid of, like, pleasure and thrill, you know? Yeah. And I think embarking on this, I think, you know, allowed her, I think, to kind of, you know... Embrace that side of herself that you know, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's very relatable. I guess as as a woman, right? Because I think um, the further you progress in life, right? I think you're you're taught to kind of embrace these roles, um, you know, like as mother, uh, yeah, you know. I mean, I mean, for me as well, like as a teacher, right? There, there are certain things you kind of have to embrace when you take on these roles, right? And a lot of it has to do, I think, with repressing or, you know, holding back certain kind of things yeah. about yourself as well, right? You you can't be a certain way, you know? So, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like she's giving herself permission to live, <laughs> at the, live a little you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, not I very moral, wondered, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's yeah, interesting. I mean, like, if the, if she was swapped out for a man, and the exact same sort of scenario happened, uh, would the the ending would feel? I don't know if the ending would feel. I don't know how the ending would feel. Uh, it, yeah, is it, it, like is it? I don't know because it feels like, oh, did she get away with it? Is she victorious, or is? Mamet saying that she's just kind of an evil person. You know what I mean? Like, well, I don't know. It's, it's, so, it's interesting like, because, I mean, <laughs> Lindsay Krauss was literally his wife at the time. Oh, <laughs> and, I mean, you look at the rest of his filmography and there's nary a uh, female protagonist to be found yeah. outside of this one. Uh, so it's it's just, it's... It is. It's like on the one hand, I I can totally read it as like, oh, this is a f- a fun twist on the idea of the femme fatale, right? Uh, and yet, it's still like, I don't know. I I, I did not. I did. I didn't. I felt more um, uh, disenchanted um, when the credits were rolling than perhaps like you know in the first. Act like when the like the water gun bit on the poker table is like oh I'm so in on this movie yeah. and it just I don't know but like I don't think like <laughs> that's the thing about mammoth movies and I feel the same way with uh, uh, certain ones like Heist um, yeah. where it's like incredible cast very fun premise and playing with audience and character expectations and then it's like it he he has a very disheartening view of the world in general. Yeah, and so you, yeah, you, yeah, you're, 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 you're made to like feel frustrated at the end. And but if, I think it, for this, for some reason it works for me because this, this definitely feels like pure genre work 
where there's not he's not trying to do anything more than make a really kind of fun interesting ice movie yeah with a lot of twists and turns like he's not stretching for anything obviously he's a wonderful writer uh and the you know the dialogue is fantastic but he never from a narrative perspective he never breaks outside thriller he doesn't has no interest in doing that to me it's almost like it felt like a game um and i felt like i was in on it and then he surprised me at the end i was like oh this is a great experience right Hmm. but i wouldn't take i don't take anything like there's the the content in crying game to me is going to stay with me for a long time nothing's going to stay with me with house of game like it's not. Like it's like a really cool cinematic movie, but like it doesn't have the same effect to me personally. Mate, could I add something about? Uh, yeah. I think her character. I think um, what what really fascinates me about it is that I think a lot of times I think uh, when we think about women and you know womanhood in general, right? Women are kind of always kind of put into this dichotomy, right? Of like saint or sinner, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, so it's like either you're you know the the. The, yeah, so you, the woman on the pedestal, the the fallen woman below, right? Uh, yeah. And I think what is interesting is that sometimes, a lot of the time, um, there is this desire to be very apologetic, I think. Um, very difficult to forgive yourself, which is the whole idea that he kind of um, embarks on, right? Um and we see that that's what um, her her client in jail is also kind of dealing with, right? You know that 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 difficulty, I think, in in forgiving yourself, that that burden, I think, that you carry, right? I think I was watching this recent uh, film, I think, came out this year, last year, end of last year, The Lost Daughter with uh, yeah. Olivia yeah. Coleman, right? Uh, and I think it it deals with that in a very similar way, right? I think uh, women, I mean, I don't know, like we are very kind of, um, we built ourselves into these roles that we feel that we need to take on, right? You know, so she she is this responsible, you know, um, I mean, definitely something happened in her, when in her younger is with her father and all that, right? So there's this like saintly image she's tied herself to, right? Um, you know, and that, that feeling, you know, uh, at the end when she thinks about what she possibly did, right? She feels so tormented by guilt, so apologetic, thick right but when we see the men right you know in contrast they don't feel yeah. anything about what they've done to her right they are the opposite yeah. you know uh of what they have put her through right you know and i think that that was what kind of made me uh kind of like the ending you know i mean i mean i don't like that she murdered him but um i think the idea of forgiving yourself you know, giving, uh, you know, being able to kind of move past that, I think was was interesting. I think for me, as a woman, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um, I mean, just for the the craftsmanship alone, and like the pacing and the writing, and the acting, it's absolutely worth seeing. Um, I mean, obviously, they're both worth seeing. We have any? We got to close this thing down. Any yes. closing <laughs> comparisons? Closing thoughts that we have about House of Games and and uh the crank what do you guys think I'll, I'll i'll go first so you can have the last word natasha as our guest i will say that there is um kind of a uh bagginess and like casual aspect to both of these films and yet like we've also mentioned they have really deliberate viewpoints that are like borderline problematic in retrospect, but also 
really just like undeniably like provocative, which is part and parcel of why we've done an episode that lasts longer than an hour for the first time in a while. Like this is, this is also just a messy time in the world. So it makes sense that identity is at the top of everybody's uh, thoughts. Like how, you know, Reagan was operating in the eighties and uh, George Bush, the first in the early nineties, at least in America, there's this really kind of, uh, strong outburst uh i had to look and find out when mamet switched because he was very notably liberal in yeah, he was. the 80s and 90s uh both in the theater world and the film industry um it was 2008 um he did an essay for the village voice titled why i'm no longer a brain dead liberal uh, uh, oh. gross. and which is <laughs> you know yeah. yeah which is interestingly the year that barack obama is elected yeah, I don't so, like that. that's not good no, uh, uh, yeah, so, like, these are, they're both very messy, problematic filmmakers making very entertaining and uh, provocative films, for better or worse. Natasha, any closing thoughts you have about Crime uh, Game or House of Game? I think, I think it's interesting, it's, what's interesting is how both films, I think, uh, revolve a lot of, around desire you know i think um hmm. what we allow ourselves to feel versus what we kind of you know um, hold ourselves from feeling right you know so i think both really really kind of pivot around that right you know and i think um you know outside i think of this idea of like identity you know um what we we you know identify with um affiliations you know categories right i think ultimately being human comes down to a lot of it comes down to desire right what i will allow myself to feel and yeah. you know what i give myself i think agency to to do you know or to pursue right so um yeah so i think uh you know for for the crying game it's restraint and then permission and then perhaps some restraint right uh whereas yeah. for i think house of games it's you know restraint and then um, permission, you know, and yeah, then I guess, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I don't, I think she's got to cage some of that at the end, yeah. right? I don't think she can go <laughs> around just, you know, willy nilly, uh, you know, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think ultimately it just comes to, comes to, yeah, what we allow ourselves to kind of pursue. So I think that for me made it very interesting, both films to watch. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you, uh, coming on the show. We yes, thank you so much, guests. Natasha. Oh my god, thank you so much. I had so much fun. <laughs> I uh-huh. I love like talking about film and uh especially, you know, speaking with you guys about it. And you know, it's it's fun to speak with people who love film and I think know so much about it or you know, read up so much about it. So it's thank you so much for having me. Of course, absolutely. Uh thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. <laughs>